Hello and welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. This is reporter Rachel Mebro and I'm here today with Pat Cornwell, who's the Clinical Director of Trauma Services for St. Francis Ministries, as well as Matt Arnett, KVC Health Systems Director of Outpatient Mental and Behavioral Health Services. We're going to be discussing mental health within the child welfare system. Let's just start by getting an overview of the system. What are the problems we're seeing? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, so about 80% of the children in the child welfare system um, are impacted by some kind of mental health or behavioral health challenges versus about 18 to 22% of the general population. But it really makes sense when you think about what has to happen for a child to enter the child welfare system. I mean, they've experienced some kind of abuse or neglect situation, which that experience in and of itself can um, lead to or exacerbate underlying mental health or behavioral health issues that a child might already have. And in some cases, we have children that have already been identified as having these challenges. And because of those challenges, it puts them in a vulnerable situation where they then become victimized. So it's probably more unusual to have a case in child welfare where the child does not have a diagnosis um, than the other way around. Wow, 80%, that's a high rate. Mm -hmm. Right, it is is very high. Um, We also see an awful lot of kiddos that have a mixture of problems. So it's not just mental health or behavioral health, but they also have developmental disabilities, have cognitive impairments. And so sometimes it's that mixture of issues that makes it really difficult to figure out what's going on and what we need to do about it. And so you can imagine for a a family with limited resources, trying to navigate complicated multiple systems, it can be really hard for them to find the right services at the right time for their child. And I would just kind of add on to that too. I mean, the the rates of diagnosis is very high, but also kids that are on psychotropic medications and multiple psychotropic medications. So it's like we we offer medication management for a number of our kids in care. And, you know, there are some providers that are really comfortable providing medication for children. Uh, and others that maybe have less experience with it. So it's not uncommon for us to have children enter the child welfare system on two, three, four, five different medications of different classes. Sometimes there's multiple medications stacked on top of each other to help deal with side effects. And so sometimes the behavioral and emotional issues that kids are presenting with may be in part due to just mismanagement of meds and a misdiagnosis at some point along the way. Um, particularly in areas where there's just fewer providers. So our frontier areas, some of our more rural areas where there maybe is only one or two options. Um, Families maybe don't feel like they're getting the kind of care that they need for their unique situation. Um, And even in the more dense areas, suburban and urban areas, we still have issues with um, kids that are underinsured, uninsured. Medicaid is complicated at times to navigate to make sure that they maintain coverage. And so then you might have kids who go periods of time without the care that they need, Um, whether that's therapeutic care through family therapy, individual therapy, it could be um, waiver services designed to help support kids in vulnerable positions, maybe don't have enough capacity. Um, I mean, those are some of the things we've been sorting through at the state level for a few years now is how can we sort of take another look at the way that we support children in the state um, to help prevent 
entry into child welfare? Like, how can we ramp up the preventative services to help get them what they need before it becomes a crisis level situation where we kind of have to step in um, because there's been maltreatment or parents are frustrated um, and overwhelmed? Yeah. Those are some good points, Matt. And many of the child welfare uh, agencies have set up their own in-house mental health, behavioral health services to to try to address some of the um, larger system challenges. So a a system that is overwhelmed, uh, understaffed, um, you know, just really trying to meet the need. You know, we've seen an increase in the needs for behavioral mental health, not just in child welfare, but in in our population across the state. And um, we just don't have enough resources to meet that need. Um, As Matt was mentioning, you know, trying to do medication management, he's right. The majority of children in the child welfare system have been prescribed at least one psychiatric medication. And while it might seem... um, logical that any doctor could prescribe a medication, which they can, there are some unique issues when it comes to psychiatric medications and children. Um, In the state of Kansas right now, we have 69 pediatric psychiatrists. may sound like a lot, but when you consider the population of children like 18 and under in the state of Kansas, we're talking over 700,000 kids. So if only 22% of those children needed medication management, that would mean each of those pediatric psychiatrists would have over 2,000 clients. And that's just not manageable to provide adequate care. So a lot of the child welfare organizations, while we certainly partner with public mental health services, I mean, they're our go-to, um, we also have set up some of our own in-house services to, to help address the need um, for these children. Yeah, so it's what you've been saying is that we're looking at a system that's already needing a lot more funding than it's getting. And then mental health in Kansas, if we look at any recent studies, it's pretty shocking. Um, I think we were rated last in 2023 for mental health resources. I mean, how does that all play together? Well, for us, it's in a lot of different ways. I mean, KBC, in addition to our child welfare work out of our outpatient, we've also been the state assessor for the autism waiver, which is a very, very small set of waiver services for young children. So it's kind of the long story short of it. It's designed for kids that are between the ages of roughly three and eight. Um, So we can try to help get services enacted quickly and help kind of raise the floor of kids' capacities who are on the autism spectrum, kids who have pretty severe presentations. You think about the kids who are nonverbal, who have, you know, really regressed um, motor function whenever they're infants and toddlers. And so, you know, for that program, there's only 65 available slots at any given time in the state. And there's an intended recipient list of 400 now. Um, And so, like, as certain diagnoses become um, diagnosed more frequently, as the markers become more public knowledge, teachers are noticing it earlier, daycare providers are noticing um, behaviors that are commiserate with, you know, with autism spectrum a lot earlier. now we don't have enough resources that there was um, Kansas Health Institute did a, a study recently in the last four or five years where they really looked at the, the lack of providers for those specific services. And so then when you get those children um, who aren't getting the services they need, parents get overwhelmed and frustrated. Those kids enter the foster care system, hoping to get additional services that just don't exist. Um, it's one of the myths that we are constantly pushing back against as we're talking to providers in our acute hospitals and um, residential facilities in the state. And when parents are feeling like, well, I don't have any other support. Maybe foster care can help out here. 
Um, there is no fast track to services. There is no extra services that exist. There's just new layers of complexities. You start adding in court systems and um, case management providers and all these other systems of care. Um, and really, if we just had more supports early for kids, and that's just one example. I mean, we see the same thing with intellectual disabilities and the ability to manage all those children on the waivers as they currently exist. And then certainly for the severe emotional disturbance waiver, um, where we get a lot of kids who start interfacing with law enforcement at a young age, start you know racking up charges. We consider those kids um, crossover youth. So they have both um, maltreatment and abuse history, and then they also have involvement with law enforcement and the juvenile justice system. Those are really complicated things to both assess, treat, and then figure out, well, where do we start first? Um, and so foster care has become a bit of a catch-all for really any children in the state that are vulnerable, that have been um, faced with a lot of challenges and people just don't know what else to do. Um, so they end up in, in our services. Yeah, I think, Matt, you've made some some very good points. We have a system that's really overwhelmed in, in so many ways in multiple systems that are overwhelmed. Um, you know, I I have seen over the years child welfare has done a really nice job of assessing and screening children that come into this system and being able to identify really early, I mean, like really early, very young children, kiddos that need additional kinds of services and supports. And while Matt is correct, we don't have any kind of a fast track to services. I mean, sometimes children do come into our system because their families have feel like they've exhausted all of their options and don't have anywhere to go. Um, we compete for the same services that the families do. I mean, we we typically use public mental health, public service systems, and so we're all competing for the same spot. However, we do have in child welfare staff that are dedicated to providing services for these kiddos. I mean, they are they can be advocates. They can um, provide transportation. They can translate among these different systems, you know, kind of from the service provider, the importance or the need for certain services and how it affects these other systems. And we can certainly follow up on the progress of services, which sometimes families just don't have that ability to do. But the um, lack of professionals in the service system right now is a serious, serious problem. When we have a child in child welfare that is needing service, they're having a mental health crisis, um, we have to take them to a hospital emergency room to be assessed, um, to have an evaluation. And we sometimes are sitting with that child 24, 36, even 48 hours in that hospital emergency room waiting for them to be assessed. Now, imagine if you're a child in the child welfare system, you have staff rotating in and out to sit with you that you may or may not know. You're having a mental health crisis and it takes you days before somebody comes in to see you to say, this is what you need. And then they make a, a recommendation. This child needs, you know, inpatient treatment or residential treatment. I mean, a really high level uh, intensive treatment. And then there's no openings. And we're waiting a month, two months, four months to have a place for this child to go for treatment. The mental health crisis hasn't gone away, hasn't resolved itself. We just don't have any place for these children to go. So it has become a really, really serious problem in the state. So if there's no resources, like how do you manage it then? Are the kids just kept in placement or how do you deal with someone who's not getting adequate resources? 
Well, I, I will just say that we've had to come up with a lot of very creative solutions, as I'm sure all the other contractors have. Um, I mean, part of like our outpatient has in-home clinicians as a lot of the CMP um, case management providers have, you know, developed their own in-house. And so we'll just intensify our own services. And so if we have a child who maybe is in like a constant mental health crisis, they're becoming unsafe in the foster home, um, then we just take it upon ourselves to see that kid two, three, four, five times a week until we can get things stabilized, kind of figure out what's maybe triggering that response or, you know, provide additional support until the bed opens up for the residential facility. That's probably our biggest bottleneck right now um, is the residential, the longer term, the 60 to 90 and plus day stays where kids really need like ongoing assessment treatment. Um, You know, a lot of companies have stepped up to start breaking ground on new facilities. That's something that uh, KBC's um, sister company, Canberra Children's Mental Health is breaking ground in a couple of weeks on a new facility by our Olathe location. Um, we've expanded and renovated in Hayes, Kansas. We, you know, opened a facility in Wichita. So lots of places are attempting to step up and provide these, you know, both of the, the most um, high level care, the acute hospitalizations, the kind of short term mental health crisis treatment, the longer term residential, and then um, the step down, the, the qualified residential treatment programs, which is like a more of like a group home type of a setting, but with more intensive therapeutic services like RQRTP. Um, I believe St. Francis also has an on-staff um, therapist, and we also supplement with additional clinical staff. Um, those kids are assessed and start receiving treatment immediately upon um, arriving there, and then we work as quickly as possible to get them back in a family-like setting. And so um, I know that that's been a huge component of it, is just directly addressing it through just expanding the staff um, who are trained in this area um, we're also looking at foster homes that are specialized and working with kids with really acute level needs and, and providing them with additional supports in the home, additional training supports to help them feel competent to work with kids that have really complex um, mental health presentations. But so that's like one thing that I think that we've done. So Pam, I don't know if you guys have some other things that you really tapped into in your area. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Um, you know, we've done many of the, the very same things. We have, you know, our own in-house um, therapeutic services that are reserved for kiddos and families in the child welfare system. We have some community-based services that serve both child welfare and the community to try to do some preventive work. Um, We also have residential treatment, certainly working with our foster homes. And really, you know, um, what all of the child welfare agencies have done is really figured out how to work all up and down the whole system. So it's not just about what we do, but it's also about policy and practice. And and so really dedicating folks to frequently be in Topeka to talk with our legislators as well. You know, over the years with administration changes and policy changes and certainly the benefits of research on what works, um, Kansas has revamped and reorganized and tried to stay really on the cutting edge of the advances in mental health and behavioral health treatment for children. And we applaud that. We we really do like that. Change is hard, though, and it comes with its its you know benefits and its downsides. And sometimes the downside is that it has made a more complicated system and it becomes harder to navigate that, not only for families, but also for for our agencies. So we have had to be creative. We've had to figure out how can we um, reorganize our resources in different ways so that we can meet the need. Um, not 
you know, all of our solutions have been the best, not the things that we would have chosen, but we are really working very hard, not only within our own organizations, with our partner organizations, with our state legislators, on how can we truly create the best system for our children, because they're all our children. Yeah. And I will say, like at the state level, I mean, there's been some some pretty uh, quality legislation that's gone through to help expand just the amount of providers for all these different services. So in this last legislative session, there's some adjustments made to just a licensure in general for all of the like social work, the marriage and family therapists, addiction counselors, professional counselors that will fast track people moving into our state to be able to start providing those critical services quicker than in the past. There's new flexibility on brand new people coming into the field with getting licensure and having the time that they need to pass licensure exams. Um, even for the addiction counseling, I'm really excited whenever this one finally goes through is a student addiction counselor license. So we have lots of staff at KBC, for instance, that maybe came into child welfare with a related degree. So maybe they're not a social worker or a therapist, but they are they have a degree in sociology or a bachelor's in psychology, things that aren't normally licensable in our state. Well, now if they want to go to school and become an addiction counselor, they can actually apply before they even start the program to lay out their you know four-year plan to get license, they can start being trained by one of our licensed addiction counselors, start doing the work while they're in school so we can start, start to build up capacity um, so we're not playing catch up. So I know one, one of the things you asked about um, before the pod was what is the influence of substances on all of this? And uh, we've definitely seen a huge surge in both children that are seeking substances and they're treating their symptoms of mental health or trauma with substances, but then also incidental contact with substances. Kids are taking things that they're not sure what is in it. Um, and then it's turning out that it's something like fentanyl or it's been laced with opiates or something else. And so, you know, we've seen a huge demand start to, to move more towards adolescence, whereas when we first started providing addiction services in-house, it was mostly for the parents. Like the goal was to get them assessed quicker, to have more flexibility to maintain them in treatment, to help move the children home um, safer and quicker. But now we're seeing it start to sh pendulum swing back towards the kids themselves are the ones who need more intensive um, addiction assessment and, and treatment. So some of these changes at the legislative level are giving us more flexibility for staffing in particular, I'd say. And for the surge, um, how long has that been going on? Is it since the pandemic or like this surge and I guess more substance abuse? Is that like over the past five years or do you have a time frame for that? Yeah, Pam, what are you guys seeing? You know, um, Everybody wants to blame everything on the pandemic, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I personally am a little bit more cautious about laying all the blame on, on the, on COVID alone, because we saw these problems before COVID started. I mean, we were already seeing a decline in the number of professionals available to provide service and an increase in the need. I mean, between 2001 and 2018, Kansas alone saw a 75% increase in suicide rates. And the biggest group that had the biggest surge was our kids. So that was a problem beforehand. Um, COVID certainly exacerbated everything, <laughs> including substance use. I mean, how do you, how do you as, a, as a very socially driven adolescent, suddenly have to just stay home and, and not see anyone and not be able to go out with your friends? I mean, it, it is very challenging. And especially for children in the child welfare system, you've you've been removed from everything that's that you know, all the people you know, and you're living with 
folks that you've never met before. And now I've got to quickly fit in. And um, when we have very poor social skills, we sometimes look for the path of least resistance. And sometimes that's to get involved in things that maybe I otherwise would not have, or I get involved in things that were familiar to me from the environment I came out of. Yeah. And I would say the same thing, too. I mean, certainly the disconnection component of COVID made it tougher to, number one, identify the people who needed the, the support. So it was tougher to, to get a handle on kids' needs earlier. I mean, whenever we went I mean, we've been using telehealth at KVC for the last 15 years in some form or another, going to 100 percent of it, you don't see as much of the environment itself. And that was like a big component for us of being able to kind of see what kids and families were dealing with is when the services are in home, we see the the neighborhood they live in. We see the challenges they deal with. We we see uh, all that stuff firsthand. And and now we have like this tiny little Zoom window. Um, and so you miss a lot of things. But we started providing some level of, of services whenever we did film presentations preservation work going back to 2013 and even back in those earlier days, like we would start to see more referrals coming in for kids that we were really concerned about and not necessarily just children who were older. I mean, we were treating kids and assessing children as young as eight um, that were abusing substances, sometimes with a family member. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we've just seen that kind of continue through um, in terms of things like staff availability, like KBC actually experienced better staff retention through the pandemic, oddly enough. And so we're not losing staff at a higher rate than before. Um, the intensity of the the families we're working with and their challenges have definitely, um, we've seen that go up quite a bit. And I think that I, the last time I pulled our stats on um, addiction related referrals, it was about 60% of our referrals before the pandemic and it's pushing closer to 75% now. Oh, wow. We're seeing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. A real increase. So then again, it all comes back down to funding, right? Funding and resources. Um, is there anything in particular you guys would like to see done in the next few years or in terms of um, bettering this whole mental health inside the child welfare system? Like if you had a magic wand, what would you use? To get <laughs> oh, wow. that That's a big question. Um, you know, so I've I've had a 30 year career in child welfare and I love this work um, and I am a, a licensed mental health professional. And if there is any way to attract people to the field, um, I think that would be an important thing. Um, attract anybody into the, the field of, of child welfare, social work, whatever it is. Um, certainly, you know, increasing wages and supports is very helpful. One of the things we're hearing from staff, though, since COVID is um, not that I necessarily, the thing that's going to keep me in, in my position is not necessarily a pay raise, but really helping me find balance in life that um, our staff are working really long hours with very difficult cases, way too many cases, uh, and their personal lives are suffering. And so when we get to the place where we where everything's a crisis and we can't help them have balance in their life, um, sometimes they have to make a choice of, you know, do I save my own sanity um, and do something different or do I stay in this field? Our people do this work because it is their personal mission. They believe in the work. They're not doing it because they get rich. They're not doing it for any other reasons than they just really genuinely care about kids and families. So if I had a magic wand, I would make more workers, more people. And what is the caseload for you right now? Like, or on average, the caseload per worker? They go as high as 50. 50, wow. Yeah. And that's just not manageable. 
not manageable at all. Plus they're also doing on call. So, I mean, we're a 24 seven business. And so we have to have people answering the phones 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we don't have special people who do that. We don't have a, you know, like a, a, an exchange service like physicians do It's our own staff. And so they rotate taking on call time. Um, if we have children that have to be transported for whatever reason, even clear across the state, they during their on-call time, they do that. Um, if we have a child that's in the, the hospital for whatever reason, we have staff that sit with that child 24 hours a day. So besides just working their cases, they're doing all of these other things as well. It's an incredibly hard job. And I would echo that too. I mean, for our clinical staff, they're usually managing a caseload of about 30 families and individual kids and on different intervals of how often we see them, but there's probably at least 30, um, you know, clients that they're engaging with our case management teams. It, it kind of depends. Like one of our offices, we're able to have a primary caseworker whose caseload is about 15 to 18 and they have some support. But then in one of our other offices, we don't have enough staff who qualify to carry a caseload on their own. And so they're splitting 30 to 40 cases between two people. Um, same challenges with with on-call. Um, and even with my clinicians who, you know, th- their job is a little bit more straight ahead where they like go see your families, provide the therapy. You know, they're essentially on call for mental health crisis for those kids and families. They're not going to necessarily call like some crisis line if they don't know that person. They're going to call their therapist. They're going to text their therapist at three in the morning. So, you know, the 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 life work balance is definitely has been a, a, a tough challenge. Um, so to help with that, I mean, if I had a magic wand, I would really make sure that the community could step up in a role where they can help us identify problematic situations at home um, to be able to talk openly about mental health and have it not be something that's scary to talk about. I mean, right now, our big initiative that we're working on as a health system across all of our states um, is what do we do about child suicide. And this is something that Pam touched on, something no one wants to think about, no one wants to talk about. Um, And we've been implementing more and more screening process, but we recently had a a meeting with the developer of the Columbia Suicide Risk Severity Scale, Dr. Posner, and her message to us was screen all the time, screen at every single interaction, make it so normal to talk about suicide that if the answer is no on the screening tool, great. Um, But when the answer is yes, if if you make it feel like, well, we're not going to just throw you in a hospital and, you know, lock you away you know, we're going to provide you what you actually need right now before it becomes such a crisis. Um, That's really where we're trying to get to. So for me, it's, you know, can the schools step in in their role and can they provide more, um, you know, trained individuals that know how to look for the signs of maltreatment or mental health? It's, you know, doctors, nurses, it's, you know, EMTs, it's people in the community in your neighborhood that just are able to openly talk about this topic um, without it feeling so scary. Yeah. That's so true, Matt. If we don't ask, ever ask the question, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of fear around, you know, well, if we ask the question, we're going to give them the idea. And that is not how it works. It, that will not happen at all. Um, but there are so many hurting people out there that we have to get comfortable with asking the question um, so that we have an opportunity to do something before it becomes a crisis situation. And, you know, when our staff have to call a parent and let them know that their child has committed suicide in our care. That is one of the most excruciating calls our staff have to make when they have to call the kids and let them know that their mom or their dad uh, or their auntie or their uncle has overdosed and has died. That is one of the most excruciating calls they have to make. 
So we don't want to have to do that. We want to be able to have the services available when they're needed in the way that they're needed so that we can address these issues as early as possible. And I know the state's done some more work, especially with suicide prevention or with a hotline and everything. Um, yeah. Is that are the resources now adequate to handle this sort of rise in suicidal suicidal mentality, or or in your opinions? Yeah, I mean, it's never enough, right? I mean, like, it, unless you, there's zero deaths by suicide, it's never enough. Right. I mean, that's kind of like the mission of, of the people who do the work is like, that's the goal, whether it's realistic or not, that still has to be the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel optimistic that at least in our area, like many of the school districts want to partner with us. I know I've been asked to train a, a number of different systems um, from community organizations like faith-based organizations all the way to school districts, parents as teachers, all these different uh, they want to have the conversation. That's good news. Like people aren't shying away from it. Um, and, and so that does you know give me hope. Um, I, I do feel like eventually we're going to get around like the, the, the wheels of government will provide more and more funding. Um, like at this point for addiction treatment, we're finally starting to see money trickle down so that, you know, agencies like St. Francis and KBC can access those funds and build out programs to meet the needs unique to our areas. And so that's also, I think, fantastic. If we can get more funding for mental health across all populations, that would be um, even better. And we, Rachel, we, both of our organizations, and I I think all of the child welfare agencies, but certainly St. Francis and KVC will always take volunteers. So if community members are interested in the work that we do, they would like to help us out in some way. We have all kinds of volunteer opportunities. Um, If they're interested in becoming a foster parent, we're always looking for more foster parents. Uh, We have websites, we have uh, toll-free numbers, so just have them reach out to us and we are more than willing to talk to them about the work that we do and how they could be a part of that if that's what they would like to do. Got it. And so we've addressed some of the big issues here. Are there any other like really um, big issues you feel besides obviously like preventing suicide is one of the hugest ones here, but are there other issues that constantly pop up in terms of mental health in the system? Yeah, I, I would say that that from from our point of view, it's having enough foster parents. We need really good, committed um, caregivers who are interested in taking care of these children, who are who are willing to take whatever comes to their door and really stick with these kids. Um, a, having a known, committed relationship goes a long way in helping children heal from their trauma and and manage their mental health. I think the only other thing that I don't know if I've really seen a whole lot of coverage around this is that, you know, unfortunately, go back to the topic of suicide. Like when we see children attempt suicide, it's almost always things like over-the-counter medications. It's things you would not normally think of as a lethal means of, of taking your life. And so when we do our um, anytime that there's any kind of a, a self-harm attempt that's significant, you know, we we talk through with our attorney and the directors and all the people involved, figure out what can we learn from this to help provide education. And one of the biggest pieces is that, you know, if if your child goes to Walgreens and gets a whole bottle of Advil and takes the whole thing, you know, that can be just as lethal as anything else they can get a hold of. And so there needs to be some like raised awareness that you know, kids are finding very easily accessible ways to harm themselves in different ways. And so uh, and that's something that, that we've just been putting out a lot of information to our foster parents, develop some trainings around this, like very simple things like locking up every single kind of medication. 
um, so that you, when you have a kid who's in crisis and is not thinking long-term is impulsive in the moment and does something that could really harm them, even if they don't end up um, dying by suicide, it could cause a significant physical impairment. It's obviously a traumatic event for everybody involved. And so um, I, this is something that I, I think comes up, you know, probably every month that we're having to send out another message about just make sure that you're keeping an eye on anything um, that can be used to harm yourself with. Yeah. And we're down to like the last five minutes here. Is there anything else either of you would like to add or bring up? Uh, well, again, I just invite people to check out the work that we do so they can uh, check out stfrancisministries.org um, and has just probably more information than they ever imagined about the work that we do. And we would love to have communities join us in this work. Uh, and I would just echo the same thing. There's, there's always some opportunity for someone to step in and uh, especially around like the holidays, that's a really obvious time where people are like thinking about being really open and caring and volunteering and donating and all of that. But um, there's things throughout the year where we really need people to to step in. You know, there's certain times of the year where child welfare experiences a surge of referrals. And we're kind of on the tail end of that wave right now. Typically by the end of the school year, people get worried about kids. Maybe they have been trying to interact with families and they're starting to get concerned about what might happen in the two to three months over the summer. And so then we get like a, a wall of referrals. Um, and then we're feeling overwhelmed. We need people that can help with transportation of kids. We need, all of a sudden we need um, toiletries and clothing items and a suitcase instead of a trash bag for their stuff. Like all of those things kind of come up, but I think most people think of the holiday season as like the time to step in and donate and as time and, and whatever, but we really need support and help throughout the year. And I mean, it just came up the other day in a, a case that I was staffing where um, what this parent really needed to maintain their high needs child in their home was someone who could spend just a few hours with them to let them run off some energy. This kid has pretty severe um, ADHD um, and is likely on the autism spectrum. And while we're waiting to get all the information for that and try to get those services, like this kid just needs someone to stay with them so mom can work. Like, and that doesn't take training. It takes a compassionate person with some patience. And so like, that's the kind of thing that I think a lot of folks maybe don't think about is they can step in in that role. Um, and kind of help us out in that way. It gives our staff a bit of a break. It you know lets someone really connect with a child. It expands their social networks. So they know that adults can be safe and caring, even if they're not family, even if they're not someone they've known for five or 10 years. Um, and so those are the kind of things too that I think is really helpful. People are not able to or willing to take the step to become a foster parent and take a child into their home long-term. Um, any amount of time and support we can get from the community is helpful. And I think it builds hope in kids and families that there is a support network out there for them. They just need to find it. Um, and so if we can use these child welfare contractors as kind of the conduit for that, um, then great. Um, you know, there's always people willing to and, and available to take in people's information and kind of get that routed to the right person. Uh, so people can use their gifts to help other people in whatever way they see. Yeah. Uh, we'll end it there. Thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you, Rachel.